Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. Well, welcome, friends. Glad you've joined us for another night in Judges. We're rapidly closing out this study just a few more weeks, and we will have walked from cover to cover in the book of Judges. Of course, we are very anxious to hear what our governor has to say on the 22nd, on Friday, and uh, how that will impact us as we are moving ahead, battling this uh, pandemic. Looking forward to the day when we can open together and gather together for services in person. For now, we're still online, and so we're looking at Judges chapter 19. We'll be reading the entire chapter here in a moment if you want to get that, to that place in your Bible and be ready for it. Father, I just pray your blessing on your word tonight. I pray that you would speak to our hearts about walking close to you, Lord, not wandering away, not being lost, O Lord, so easy to get lost in this day. We ask, O God, that your presence would rest upon us as your blessing always accompanies the reading and teaching of your word. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by talking to you about the law of unintended consequences. Rather than try and come up with some technical explanation, I thought I'd just use a word, kudzu. Kudzu. We see the law of unintended consequences all the time here in the, in the southern United States with kudzu. Just north of our church here, we have a spectacular infestation of this kudzu vine it was imported from Japan in 1945 for erosion control. It went wild, especially in some of the rural areas. And this stubborn vine, this kudzu vine, has taken over fields and choked out trees. It was just too effective. But not to worry. This, according, this is just in, according to Smithsonian Magazine, the Japanese kudzu bug was suddenly found, it suddenly appeared near the Atlanta airport about six years ago, and it's been gaining strength. The kudzu bug loves to devour kudzu. It's as though these little bugs have, uh, however they got imported to the United States, they uh, have found their golden corral. Now we have to worry about running out of kudzu and what that will mean for the bugs, because everything comes down to these unintended consequences. Let me take you to another scenario. Rogue cops beat a black man named Rodney King in Los Angeles. They weren't trying to start a riot. This was 30 years ago. They weren't trying to start a riot. They were just being bad cops. Los Angeles burned. Many of you will remember with me watching almost in horror on television as we saw that city erupt in flames. Unintended consequences. How often is something said at a family gathering that stirs anger and resentment that ruins that day, Thanksgiving or Christmas, that ruins it for the family for that year and for years to come, sometimes dividing families, unintended consequences. Now, connected to the law of unintended consequences is the possibility for exponential devastation. Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in 1914 with his wife. He was the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne. 
His assassination by a 19-year-old Bosnian brought the two countries and then their allies to war. All of that escalated into the First World War. One assassination in all places, Austria, Hungary, Bosnia, launches a world war. It changed everything. People all over the world in that day, 1914, they, many of them didn't know who Ferdinand was, but they were soon giving their sons to go fight on foreign fields. And the law of exponential devastation connected to the law of unintended consequences burned the world down. Now in Judges, it's the same. As we open chapter 19, we are given a final horror story that really uncovers for us what Israel has become. All things are set in motion by a single horror. We'll read about it in a moment. This single horror show that escalates ultimately into a war. The 19th starts as the other chapters often. They have no king. Israel has no king. All of the judges foreshadow the coming of the kingdoms to Israel. The evil of Israel without a central and godly leader is, it's at the very core of all this. And what happens when Israel has no king? Every man does what is right in his own eyes. In our study, we have seen a steady escalation. We started with a judge named Gideon, chosen by God, talks with God, hears God, listens obeys God, wins victories in God's name. But we've seen these judges become more and more wicked, more and more evil, descending to lower and lower places until now the, name, the villains in the stories are nameless and we're reduced to grotesque retaliations. In our study then, we've escalated from Gideon who speaks to God to nameless characters who do unspeakable evil. Judges is not going to end on a note of victory. It's a depressing book that way, and it's one of the reasons why when people are looking at the books of the Bible, they don't single Judges out and say, you know, I really feel like I'm going to spend some time studying the book of Judges. It's, it's a depressing book. See, Judges is a reflection of just how lost the children of Israel had become. They're living in the land that God gave them, that God promised to Abraham, but they're not living according to the law of Moses. They've slipped away. They've run away from God. And in so doing, they're dwelling in the land, but they're dwelling in the land poorly. Our story, we'll read in a moment, our story is located in the very center of Israel again. And once again, it's about a Levite. A Levite, supposedly one who by his tribe is set aside for ministry. It's about a Levite and his concubine. Concubine was a servant and a sexual object. These marital troubles between the Levite and his concubine inspired a war and the near annihilation of an entire tribe of Israel. Unintended consequences, exponential devastation. So let's read the story now that we've kind of set the stage. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in, rem in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. 
But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father and the young woman saw him, he was glad to, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. So they ate, and they drank, and they lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day. They arose early in the morning, and they stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to the son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of food, and afterward go your way. And they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose on the morning of the fifth day to depart, and the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day's now drawing towards evening. Please spend the night. See, the day's coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so you might get home. However, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem. With him were two saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. And they passed by and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into a lodge at Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city for no one would take him into his house to spend the night. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjaminites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where did you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem to, uh, in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I'm going to the house, um, now I'm going to the house of the Lord but there's no one to take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only don't spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house, gave fodder to the donkeys, washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went to them and said to them, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, 
Here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do what you would do, uh, do as you would please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came uh, as the day was dawning and fell at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master rose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer and speak up. Horrible, horrible story. The opening words say it all. In those days, there was no king. We're now familiar with these words. We know what always follows. There was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right in his own eye. The story revolves around a Levite and his concubine. A concubine was a second-class wife in a polygamous relationship. She didn't have the benefits of, of, of a, a full wife. A concubine lacked full matrimonial uh, union and benefits. She was really a servant and also a sex object, in the words of Keller. So the Levite is both uh, the husband and the master of this woman. He is her husband, but he is also her owner. While God makes clear in Genesis chapter 2 and 24 that marriage is between one man and one woman, many believers in subsequent times followed the culture and had multiple wives and concubines. From Abraham through Jacob down to Solomon, polygamy always brought heartache and pain without exception. It was always troublesome. It is disturbing that this Levite, who was supposed to be set apart as holy to God, has indeed been swept into this pagan culture taking a concubine. Then again, in our last chapter, another Levite who was, remember, the grandson of Moses, he had become an idolatrous false priest. See, Judges is giving us a snapshot of the wickedness and the evil of the culture of Israel. This Levite and his concubine have a fractured relationship. Early on, she has played the harlot. She committed adultery and left him, returning to her father's house in Bethlehem, the town that this Levite had left. So he's familiar with the territory. This Levite and his concubine have a fractured relationship. She has played the harlot. She's committed adultery. And then she leaves her husband, returns to her father's house in Bethlehem, the town that the Levite was also from. So the Levite is very familiar with the geography. He knows where she is probably gone, and he's going to go and find her. When we look into the circumstances, we are left to wonder, was the Levite harsh? Did she feel threatened by him? 
Was there a history of violence? Or just to be really harsh, was she just a whore? We aren't given enough to go on to fully color in this picture, but this is a total alienation since to leave her master and her marriage, even though it was concubinage, to leave her master in marriage, it was absolutely impermissible, impermissible by culture and law. Yet the Levite waits four months before he goes to persuade her to return. And we wonder what's up with all of this. Did he need to cool off or did he want to give her space? He evidently was not too bothered about having his concubine back, but eventually he wanted either her servanthood or status or sex. One thing we can be confident of, this was not a loving, lasting relationship. This was a husband-owner, husband-master relationship. Devastating every time. The concubine's father is rather strange in that he gladly welcomes the Levite into his household and keeps prevailing upon him to stay a little bit longer. He persuades him to, to just one more night. Let's, let's eat and drink together one more night. He's just, he's delaying his departure. Ancient Near Eastern culture demanded that hospitality be shown, but this was way over the top. And it leads us to a point where we wonder that the father's not almost desperate because the penalties for both adultery and for leaving your owner, the concubine, leaving her owner, they could be severe. It could be death. Definitely disgrace on the family. And so the father appears to be ensuring that the Levite is going to be a buddy-buddy and won't press charges and is deeply relieved, really, that he has come to take his daughter home again. His delays were just way over the top. There's nothing in the text that tells us that the woman was persuaded. The story centers on the interaction between the father and the husband. She's a piece of property. She's a victim. Every indication is that the father freely gives her back to the Levite without her having to make any choice or having any voice in the decision. Both father and husband treat this woman as an object. One wants to avoid disgrace. The other just wants his property back. Neither care about the woman at all. A father loves his daughters. I know I'm the father of three. This love hasn't abated in me since it was stirred to life when these children, these beautiful babies were born in hospital delivery rooms. They're all past the age of 30 now and I love them more than ever. Can't imagine a father not loving his daughter And then a husband should love his wife. It's commanded of us in the scriptures. Often I hear men uh, talk about a woman's responsibility to submit to her husband. And what they don't realize is they condemn themselves by their own words. Surely a woman is called to submit herself to her husband as unto the Lord. But men are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So the measure that a man should give to his wife should be determined upon the level of love that Christ has for the church. It is a greater responsibility 
than mere submission. Tough words. It's a reflection. This man and wife in union together, a reflection of the love that Christ has for his church. But this story in Judges is completely void of love altogether. And it is surely a commentary on the state of Israel. God's beloved children are estranged as we're turning the bloody pages of of Judges. They're estranged. It is worth noting that unlike every other section in the Judges, None of the characters here are named, except later on we'll see in 20 and following, a priest is mentioned, but none of these characters even have a name. Keller writes, the anonymity is meant to suggest that these men and women stand all for their type in Israel. This is how Levites live. This is how fathers thought. This is how women were treated. It's a dark, dark picture, and it's about to get darker still. After five days, the text tells us in the afternoon, the man and his concubine got up to leave. And they set off towards Jebus, a town that should be Benjaminite, but because the Benjaminites have not fully cleared the land as they were required to, they've left the Jebusites there. They failed. They failed in taking the portion of land that had been given to them by God. And now, and now the Jebusites hold the stronghold. This Jebus is later on known as Jerusalem. And it's David who, now down the road, it's not going to happen now, but down the road, David will take this citadel city and he'll change it forever. Because the day is almost over as they reach Jebus, the Levite servant suggests, let's stop here. But the Levite is unwilling to go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. There's an irony here. Despite the canonization of Israel, clearly he is not confident that as Israelites, they will be safe in Jebus. He decides to try and reach Gibeah or Ramah Benjamite, in Benjaminite uh, territory, therefore safer places. And as the sun sets, they reach Gibeah in Benjamin and they stop for the night. Gibeah is about 2.5 miles to the north of Jerusalem. It puts him in late in the day, but he feels safe because it's an Israelite town. And so he feels like, I'm among my own people. We'll be okay here. And the author of Judges wants us to see Israel here again. The Levites, uh, the Levite sees the Jebusites as a dangerous people. And he journeys on to an Israelite city where he'll be safe among his own. And what happens among his own turns out to be a horror of horrors. You see, Israel is turned into a horror story before God. That's what you find out in Judges. And when you're reading Judges and you're offended by it, because every chapter, every chapter you go, it just becomes more and more violent and it becomes more and more bizarre. And and you feel like this story just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. That's the point. That's the point. The author of Judges is giving us a a historical overlook saying Israel is plunging (coughs) deeper and deeper and deeper into disparity or into... um, Debauchery. The author wants us to see Israel here. They've turned into a horror story before God. Arriving at Gibeah, 
No one takes this man and his small party in. Near Eastern culture said that if a guest came or if a, if a, a traveler came through your city and walked into a, a place where you were, there was a, somewhat of an obligation to extend to them hospitality. No one, no one offers them a place to stay. This is a gross breach of protocol and may tell us that the tribe of Benjamin was very much out of sorts with the rest of Israel. It's late in the day. And an old man who comes through the city, an old man has mercy on them. By now, their presence in that town, in that city, would be known to all. The old man says it's too dangerous here in the square, and he takes them to his place. The Bible tells us the old man is not a Benjaminite. He is from Mount Ephraim. He's from the same area as the Levites, so he feels a kinship. The old man doesn't want his fellow tribesmen to be subject to foul play. And so he opens his home. And what's going on here? This is not the wilderness. It's not a Canaanite town. This is Israel. This is God's land. What is so dangerous? What is so dangerous about this square? You see, this is like one of those bad B movies where a stranger stumbles into a town and the town has some dark, horrible, terrorizing secret. That's what we have here in Judges chapter 19. The Levite now has everything that he needs. Shelter, the old man is provided. He's got his own straw and fodder. He's got food. He's got, well, all's well. And at the beginning of verse 22 in chapter 19, all is well. They're beginning to, the Bible says, they're enjoying themselves. And then the trouble comes. And what happens next in the story makes you want to turn away. It really does. Gibeah's dark criminal and sexually violent element surrounds the house house and demands, they demand the man. Send your guest out that we may abuse him. This This is the story of Sodom and Lot. It's the same thing cycled over again. And the old man is unwilling to hand over his guest because that is his primary responsibility. But instead, he offers his virgin daughter and the man's concubine. We don't know what happened with the virgin daughter. But he offers the concubine also. Now, look at this broken, shattered value system. This is a horror story. Israel has become Sodom. That's where we are in Judges. That's where we are in the the history of the children of Israel. They have fallen so far from the days when when they stepped in to possess the land under Joshua. They have fallen so far, they don't look any longer like the people of Abraham or the people of Moses. They look like the people of Sodom. The concubine was taken. She was raped and abused all night. She was so physically damaged that she would die on the doorstep of her master. Where God is absent, human life is devalued and the weaker vessels will suffer more. Women suffer greatly. Look at Jesus in his dealing with women. He honored them. He befriended them even in a male-dominated culture. 
Who is faithful? Who is, who is with them every step of the way? Jesus takes care of women. He honors women. He is served by women. He is strengthened by women. Who's there on the cross when Jesus is on the cross? The women are. Look at Israel in Judges. We want to think that we are so much more sophisticated and evolved today, more educated than they were, free from fables and myths and all of that. And yet there are places within driving distance from it all where a woman or child is not safe after dark. There are hell holes around the world where this story is not some awful aberration. It's the kind of evil that is an everyday present reality. I cannot get away from the image of this concubine with her hands extended out and holding to the threshold. That's how her master finds her when he opens the door in the morning. And so what does he do? He says to her, get up, let us be going. We're left with the indication that the Levite enjoyed a good night's sleep, opened the door, and was ready to move on with business. Bible tells us also that she didn't answer, indicating she's dead. Why, when the Levite seemed so unconcerned about brutal rape and the subsequent death of his concubine, why does he then send her body parts around Israel? It's really this reason. He wants vengeance on the men of Gibeah. Not for the treatment of this woman. After all, he sent her out to them. No, it was more about the loss of his property and the insult he had borne. And when I read this man in the story, I have to say I hate him. I hate him as much as I hate the rapists and murderers of Gibeah. My father's heart looks upon that hand on the threshold and it is, it's an unbearable story. We want to look away, but that's the issue. That's why judges were supposed to be reviled by what we are seeing here. The good people of Gibeah, and surely there were good people there, looked away. The Levite is not, according to any hints in the story, He's not brokenhearted for her. He's angry at his loss of property. He has made a great effort and taken time to retrieve this lost asset. Now his property has been taken from him. He carries her corpse home on the back of a donkey where he dismembers her into 12 parts. Then he sends her throughout Israel to all of the tribes with the story, no doubt. And we're finally left with this. Such a thing has never been heard in Israel, and it's just too horrible to grasp. And now outrage will have its day. But the true outrage is the sin of Israel, her idolatry, her evil. Israel has become morally deaf and blind. Israel is like Sodom. Outrage is about to have its day but it will accomplish nothing. When we begin this study, we said we start with an understanding of Gideon and then we begin 
a slow downward spiral in the moral life of Israel. At the end of the 19th chapter here, we really are scraping the bottom of the barrel. And next week, next week we'll see the escalation that takes place in the 20th chapter, setting up the 21st as we see the book of Judges close. Father, I pray that our hearts would be guarded. Remind us, O Lord, that when we wander far from you, we have a gross potential for evil that is stunning. So Lord, help us, I pray. Help us to find wisdom, wisdom to live. Help us, O Lord, that we would not be compromised in any way, but live holy lives. And thank you for your spirit who accompanies us and empowers us now to live victorious lives. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope it won't be too long before we're able to gather together again and open the scriptures together. Until then, may God's rich blessing rest upon you.